morning. I am here this morning to talk to you about inflation. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Um, it wasn't, wasn't totally a joke. Um, so inflation is a thing. It's happening. But what I, the reason I want to bring it up and actually want to start here is because um, I want to talk about it as something that's generating a lot of anxiety. Uh, at least for me, it's generating, uh, yeah, anxiety, worry, concern. Um, just looking at what it costs to fill up my gas tank right now. Um, our last heating oil bill for our house was was pretty shocking. Does anyone else use heating oil? Like, during the, anyone relating to this? Like, you're feeling you're feeling this, right? Good. Okay, not just me. Um, so yeah, I mean, inflation. It's it's a thing. It's happening, and it's making me wonder what you know. Are there going to be some financial sacrifices over this next year that my family's going to need to make? Um, those kinds of questions. Is this working? Cool. Great. Um, so what I want to my point in bringing this up at the beginning is to say that I think whenever things like this are going on, uh, the surface level anxiety or worry or fear, things that get generated in our emotions, um, those things point to deeper, deeper things going on. So, and I think, I think for me, the anxiety and fear that I'm feeling around inflation is, uh, yeah, it's pointing to something deeper and it's pointing to something, and this is really where I wanna kind of linger for a minute. Uh, things like the economy, things like the market, things like inflation, uh, there are certain forces that just feel really big, right? They feel really big. They feel bigger than me. I think that's part of the anxiety. It just feels like there's this really big thing that's like making life harder. And it just feels so much bigger than me. It feels like I have no, if I'm honest, I like look at it, I'm like, I have no control here. I have like, I, there's nothing I can do, right? And that, that's a fearful place. It's like being in the middle of an ocean or on top of a mountain. If you've you know, been in those places, you kind of are confronted with like the bigness of something, right? There are things in the world, in this case, the economy, um, and forces like that that just feel really powerful. They feel unassailable, uh, unassailable. they feel invulnerable. Um, I mean, and you can consider other cultural examples, right? Uh, political partisanship feels just big, too big. Um, gun violence, shootings, heartbreaking reality of what's going on around that right now. That feels too big, at least to me. It's like, I don't, I, I don't know what to say in the face of that, right? These things feel like these cultural issues, these, I keep using the word forces because I think that gets like a spiritual layer to it. There are forces that feel invulnerable, if we're honest. Like from our human perspective, they just feel too big. They feel like we can't do anything. They feel unassailable. And what I'm trying to really evo evoke here, honestly, is this is a little bleak, I guess. But what I'm trying to evoke is the feeling of helplessness, right? These things feel, at least for me, and I'm sh pretty sure I'm not the only one, it feels, I feel helpless in the face of it. These problems bring out this feeling of helplessness. And it's interesting because we live in a culture and we live in a, an age in which we're drilled, at least if you grew up you know, in the States or in the West, maybe more broadly, we, you're kind of drilled into your head, like you can make a difference. You can do anything you want to do. You just put your mind to it. You can you know, follow your dreams. Um, and we're encouraged to really chase that down. And that's, that's good. Like there's good things about that. I don't want to be too simplistic. But I wonder sometimes if the negative side of that is 
we don't really honestly think about how helpless we are sometimes. The negative side of that is that it can take a lot, a lot for us to simply acknowledge we're weak. We can't fix the world, right? You imbibe this message that you can be anything, be the change you want to see in the world, right? You can be anything. Sometimes that clouds this deeper truth that we actually can't fix the world. And that's what I'm trying to acknowledge up front. We cannot fix everything. Some things, this is important, some things just are bigger than us. They just are. So I actually want to pause for a second on that. I'm going to give you 20 seconds just to reflect on that for a moment. Like sometimes we like start these services and we just I just bulldoze through my sermon. Don't give you a second to just like receive something. So I want, I want you to receive that. Some things just are bigger than us. I want you to reflect on that. And then maybe think about what tempts you if you're honest, what tempts you to hopelessness? What tempts you to despair? Um, and we might take a minute to, to verbally acknowledge some of that stuff before we go on into the story of Exodus. So take, take 20 seconds or so. Just, just sit in silence with that. That was 30 seconds. Does that feel like an eternity to anyone? We don't have a lot of silence in our culture. So, does any, would anyone like to, and this is not, there's no pressure here. I'll stand up here for as long as, you know, I feel comfortable in awkward silence. But would anyone like to verbalize something that came up for them? Like what, what tempts you towards helplessness? What, what feels bigger than you? Anyone? Sure, that's a good, yeah. Yep, you're confronted with something that's too big, you just kind of say, well, I'm just not going to think about it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, very relatable. Yeah, Linda. I can almost always manage the day that I'm in, but the idea that I could be overwhelmed the next day or the next day is difficult for me, and that's an uh, yes, just the not knowing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Anyone else? One or two more? Yeah, Emily. Um, I think for me, being in the Northwestern Missouri community, 
Yep. Thank you for sharing that. I thank you for sharing that. Yep. I very much relate to that. Thank you. I'm sure there's others. Um, I'm not going to linger any longer. The introverts are like, please move on. I just want to listen to what you want to say. Um, all right. Um, but I did want to linger here because uh, we're in Exodus, as probably almost all of you know. Um, and I want to draw a quick comparison in this feeling of helplessness, this feeling of being overwhelmed or apathy, this feeling of just like I just can't deal with that. I want to draw a comparison of that feeling to the story we're going to look at together. Because if you feel helpless or apathetic or if you feel disengaged in the face of stuff, then I want you to know at the beginning that that is precisely the, the same way the Israelite slaves would have felt about their situation in Egypt. Right? Egypt was the most powerful empire and civilization at the time. Pharaoh was literally seen as a divine figure, like an embodiment of the God who had given Egypt its power. He was a human, represent, human representation of, a, of an Egyptian God. He was unassailable, invulnerable in their mind. What could possibly, what could possibly take down those forces in favor of a weak and oppressed group of slaves? Right? So we're going to spend some time in chapter 7 of Exodus. So you can flip there if you have the text or pull up on your phone or whatever. Um, we're going to look at um, the first two signs. We're going to look at a pretty famous section of the story. We're going to look at two signs performed by Moses. Um, but before we do that, uh, I want to look at the verses, few verses at the beginning of chapter 7. We're not going to read the whole chapter for sake of time. Uh, but the first few verses at the beginning of chapter 7 tell us a lot about God's purposes in this whole thing that's going on. And so we're about to pivot into, we've been in Exodus for um, about six or six weeks-ish. Uh, we're about to pivot into the section that's known as the plagues, right? The ten plagues. It's super famous. It's probably, a lot of people probably have never even really read the Bible much, probably know something about this section of the story. Um, but before we get into the actual plagues themselves, I want to read, just focus on a few verses here. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter on your own as you have time. But verse 5 in chapter 7 says this. This is the word that's being given to Moses from God, from God's perspective. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. I like to think about this as um, God's purpose statement for the whole Exodus story. So God instructs Moses and Aaron to go together into right into Pharaoh's court, the center of the empire, and he's basically telling Moses and Aaron how this is all going to play out. He basically says, you know, you're going to tell this stuff to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to be angry, <laughs> and he's not going to listen. And you're going to do these signs, and Pharaoh's still going to not going to listen. It's going to kind of go, it's going to play out like this. So God tells him how it's basically all going to go. And then in the midst of those instructions, he gives these words. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Like I said, I think of this as God's purpose statement for the whole thing. Um, Another way to think about this is the Egyptians think they have powerful gods. The Egyptians think they are the powerful empire, but they will know who the powerful one really is when this is all said and done. That's what the Egyptians will know. The Egyptians will know who this god is. And this is interestingly, I had a whole, I don't have time to go into it, but I had a whole sidebar on the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh, um, which is an interesting element of this story. If you want to talk about that, email me. 
I had to delete it out of my outline because it was getting too long. Um, but the only thing I do want to say is that in Romans 9, Paul picks up on this when he comments on the Exodus story in the letter to the Romans, right? Some of you might know this section of Romans or this verse. But when Paul, centuries and centuries and centuries later, is writing to the church in Rome, he says, the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, for this reason, this is really important, so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth, even beyond Egypt, the whole earth. This is God's purpose in the Exodus. I really believe that God's purpose in the Exodus is to display who he is. And I'm emphasizing all of this purpose and this why, because we're about to get into these plagues, which I'm going to say a little bit more in a minute. I prefer the term signs and wonders instead of plagues. Um, these, these plagues are not just, they're not just kind of cool magic tricks that God does. They're not just kind of dramatic events for the sake of being dramatic. They have a purpose. They're not just for making an exciting story. They, they have a purpose for God to be known in a specific way. And I think that God is intentionally, in the Exodus story, God is intentionally confronting and striking down the most powerful forces in the world at the time so that the world would know who actually has power. Think about those powerful forces that we talked about at the beginning, things like inflation, things like anxiety. Put those in for a minute for the powerful forces that God is striking down in the Exodus. Because at the time, like I said, the most powerful forces at the time of the story were things like Egypt itself, things like Pharaoh, things like the Nile, which we're going to talk about in a minute. For us, take those out and replace them with things like the economy, political ideologies, sex, sexuality, individual self-expression, self-identity, celebrity, right? These are forces that work in our culture that seem like they're the most powerful things at play. But where I kind of want to go this morning is I want to consider what it might mean to believe that God is dismantling the most powerful forces of our age, including those things I just listed. That's kind of what I want us to imagine together. And that is why I prefer, I'm growing to prefer as I study Exodus and go through this series, I'm growing to prefer the term signs and wonders for these plagues because um, signs and wonders display something, right? A plague is just nasty. <laughs> you just want to avoid it. But a sign and a wonder, like it displays and it teaches and it instructs something. And I really think, and actually the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which is a really good translation, um, uses, the, uses the term signs when it talks about in the story. So I'm going to try to keep using that, that term instead of plagues as we press into this together. Um, but the signs and wonders that God is giving are intended to display and instruct and really teach who God is in a specific way. Um, so let's talk about the first two signs that are given. Um, in verse 10, this is obviously kind of abbreviated, but this is a famous scene. They go into the court, they throw down their staves, and they turn into snakes, serpents, um, it says, Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. And then that little ellipsis there that what happens is the, the court magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, do the same thing. And the text specifically says that they do it with their occult arts, right? So they rely, they're relying on some sort of occult practice, which Aaron isn't relying on. They do the same thing, but then Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. So again, man, this is like, it's so tempting to look at this and be like, wow, this is so cool, you know? I want to be able to throw a stick and make it turn into a snake. Um, actually, I don't really want to be able to do that, but um, it's kind of cool. So what I want to say about this is there's more going on than just it being cool, obviously. 
the serpent, and actually the, there's some interesting questions about the word there. Some people think it looked more like a like a like a like a dragonish, crocodilish thing. I'm not really sure. It's a little bit of a vague word in the Hebrew, but regardless, though, what's, what is clear is that the serpent creature, the serpent creature, is symbolic in some ways of Pharaoh himself, and that's why I pulled this picture. This is a famous picture. Of a, uh, I think this is actually um, King Tut. But look, if you can see closely, look at the, what's at the top of his headdress are snakes, right? This is a very common thing for Pharaoh to wear a headdress with snakes on it. And also the, the fan that come, comes down, the very famous like Pharaoh look, that's supposed to be like the, the cobra wings, right, or whatever those things are called, the hood. So imagine, now put that in, uh, imagine Pharaoh is sitting there watching this, and then he sees these snakes appear, and then he sees the Israelite snake eat the other snakes that his magician just, just put on the ground. Like, what's going to be going through his mind, right? If it's very obvious that this is a symbol of Pharaoh who's wearing that headdress probably while he's watching this happen, it starts to paint a picture of what God is, God is doing. I think it telegraphs, it points towards the ultimate victory that God is going to have over Pharaoh when this is all said and done. The story is telling us that the story is telling us that the fact that Pharaoh's magicians could do this too, it points to that they do have some legitimate power, like they have some ability to do these kind of things. But God's power is stronger. God's power devours their power. Moses and Aaron's serpent devours the others. This is the first sign. It's not one of the ten plagues, but it's the first sign that Moses and Aaron do to Pharaoh. It's a powerful symbol. And obviously, you know, Pharaoh doesn't take it <laughs> very well. It says he hardens his heart. There's an interesting interplay between when Pharaoh hardens his heart and Mero, uh, um, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's really cl- unclear how to get to the bottom of that. Um, but what we do know is that Pharaoh is very, very stubborn in the face of this. He is not taking the lesson. And so... The story proceeds to the next sign, the, fir- the first w- of what we classically number as the ten plagues. And in verse 17, pay attention to the words about God's purpose again in this. This is what the Lord says. Listen to this. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. That, that purpose keeps showing back up. This is why I'm doing these things, so you'll know who I am. This, here's how you know I am the Lord. Watch. I am about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and I will turn it to blood. Again, it's very famous. It's a well-known scene. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this at least once before, but it bears repeating, and I alluded to this a few minutes ago. The Nile was more, more than just a river for Egyptian culture and for the civilization. The Nile itself um, was associated with divinity. There was a god. Um, I can't remember the name of the god. I actually did look it up. Um, There was a a god that was specifically associated with the flooding of the Nile. Um, And the Nile itself, some of you probably know this, the the Nile itself was the source of Egypt's uh, economic power and stability. So basically what was going on in the ancient world was because the Nile Delta especially, it it flooded regularly. It would flood and recede regularly. That's really important, the regularity of it. And it would deposit silt, and it would make it uh, very, very um, a productive farmland essentially. The regularity of it and the kind of the richness of the soil made it made is is really why Egypt was such a powerful civilization at the time. 
And it's because of this that the Nile itself became associated with divinity. And it was also, and this is really important, it was also the, the fact that it was happening was also in Egyptian worldview a proof of the God's blessing on Egypt. So the blessings of the Nile and the way that it gave their culture stability and support and strength was a clear sign that Egypt's gods were blessing them and were powerful. And the fact that they were the most powerful empire in the world was proof, again, that they, their gods were stronger than the other gods in the world. The gods were on their side, so to speak. And I always try to emphasize, when I have a chance, I try to emphasize things like this, try to connect it to our culture and our time, the ways we think. Because it's super tempting to read these ancient stories. It's really tempting to scoff, look down our nose at people like the ancient Egyptians because we are a scientific worldview. We're advanced. You know, we don't believe in God, right? Um, but, man, how often, <laughs> how often do we do the exact same thing? Like economic power is proof of God's blessing, right? Stability, material resources, growth power. It's clear proof of God's blessing on us. And it's really tempting to do this with the country, with the nation, you know. But it's also tempting to do that with the church, frankly. The churches that are the wealthiest or the biggest or the flashiest or the whatever, you know. It's proof of God's blessing. And it could be God blessing them. Let me say that. It could be. But the Egyptians thought the gods were blessing them through the Nile. Right? And they're about to have that all torn down. So my point, my point in saying this is just to say that we, it's a human thing. We're like the Egyptians far more than we probably realize. And if you go further into the Old Testament story, the Israelites are going to do the same exact thing. They're going to fall into the same trap when they get a nation, when they get wealth, and when they get power, and they get a king. They're going to start to look at the wrong things as proof of God's blessing. Those are the wrong things to look for. So in striking down the Nile itself, God is making clear, abundantly clear, that he is Lord over even what gives Egypt its power and stability. He is a Lord over it. Give me a, a modern analogy. Imagine someone walking onto Wall Street. And actually, maybe this isn't a great analogy because Wall Street's not doing so hot right now. But but I think you get, you get my point. Imagine someone walking onto Wall Street with a cut of couple waves of their hands, a few words, the entire thing just shuts down. Whole thing, whole stock market just completely shuts down. What would people do? Right? Read stories about the, the crash in 1929. Frantic is an understatement of how people would react. It's similar, similar to the idea of the Nile shutting down. And if you read the rest of the chapter, it actually says that people were scratching around in the ground to try to just find water. Like they were digging around to try to find clean water they could drink. This is this was a scary situation for them. And then there's a line, I think I have a slide for it. Yeah, this is chilling to me. After when it says after all this happens and Pharaoh the, the Nile turns to blood, people can't find water, it says Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, and he didn't take even this to heart. Interesting line concerning his hard heart that keeps showing up in the story. And that maybe shouldn't be too, sur too surprising to us. After all, if you kind of get the sense of Pharaoh's character. But I think what's happening here is Pharaoh's refusing the lesson. He's refusing the lesson that's being offered. Right? The, the signs are being offered as a chance to display God's glory, God's power, God's sovereignty, God's intentions. 
It's a display of who God is, and Pharaoh's not taking the hint. He's not taking the lesson. He's refusing to acknowledge the clear lordship that's being displayed. And this is tragic. He's refusing to acknowledge that God is the God over all the gods, (laughs) so to speak. It's tragic because his refusal is going to have dire, tragic consequences for his own family later in the story, if you know where where this uh, story goes. But I want to say, and here's near the end, I want to say that don't we have don't we have the same invitation as Pharaoh? Don't we have it even today? In the face of the gods of our age coming down, being struck down, don't we have the same exact invitation as Pharaoh had? Because I do wonder, I do wonder if our cultural gods, and I'm using that word intentionally, because I do think we project divine power onto these forces in our, in our time. I do wonder if the gods are being torn down around us. Let me ask a few questions, just, just to consider. What if inflation doesn't slow down? What if it gets worse? I don't know about you, but I find myself like tempted to read news about like the numbers going down. Being like, oh, thank God. Like the other month, it went down. I was like, okay, good, maybe it's over. What if it's not? What if it gets worse? What if racial tensions in our culture, in America at least, continue to get worse, get exacerbated? I, I know this is not fun to imagine, but what if the next election sparks an even more violent backlash than what happened on January 6th? What if, what if our democratic structures that we put so much kind of hope in, what if they don't last the next election cycle or the one after that? What if they don't? And you can go on with other examples. Those are just a few. Will we, in the face of those possibilities, will we, with hard hearts like Pharaoh, stand defiant and refuse to acknowledge that there's a God who knows how to run things better than we do? That's the invitation, I think. And I can't help, I can't help but think I've had good, good friends who have been radically impacted by 12-step recovery. Does anyone know the first step in 12-step program? Turn your life over to a higher power. It's the first thing you got to do. If you're not willing to do this, you, you can't go anywhere in recovery. I just can't help but think about that. And hear me, I hope you hear me clearly. I'm not trying to make light of any of these issues. I don't want violent backlash to political issues in our culture. I don't want that to happen. I don't want to make light of how that impacts real people's lives. But I just have to be honest and ask if we don't, I think if we don't let ourselves feel the potential of those things coming down and, and, and the like the real invitation that comes as a result of that, then we might actually miss a real chance to put trust where it needs to go, in the God of heavens and earth. (laughs) What if, go back to those questions, what if God is, like in Egypt, what if God is tearing down what we think is so powerful? And to the extent that you feel fear about some of those scenarios I just outlined, 
that means you think those things are powerful. And I get it. I think they are too. But what if God is tearing down what we think is so powerful so we might see clearly enough who really has power? Because I can promise you, whatever happens with elections and racial tensions and economic forces and, and everything else, if another pandemic happens, you know, I can promise you that whatever that stuff looks like, the church will stand. It really will. And I don't mean that as some cliche, inspirational thing. It just is true because we've seen it stand for centuries that have gone through way worse than what we're going through. Things that are way more tumultuous than what we've gone through. And we've gone through a tumultuous two years, this church specifically. That's all true, and I can also promise you that the resilience of the church, the resilience of Missio Dei, and the church more broadly, the resilience is not going to be measured by its resources, by its platform in our culture, by simple numbers. It's not going to be measured by that, but it's going to be measured by things like prayerful dependence on God's Spirit and the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be measured in increase in power, increase in numbers, but increases in faith, increase in hope, increase in love. That is where the resilient church will stand. And it has to be animated by God's spirit. And it has to be animated by a clear sight of who actually has power here, which means we need to convert out of thinking that other things have power. so we're going to transition to communion in a moment. And I want to say, I want to talk a little bit about God's victory here. And that's how I want to encourage us to approach communion this morning is in the spirit of meditating on God's victory. And what I want to say is that I want to talk about how God wins the ultimate victory. So we know that God won a victory in Egypt. That's the Exodus story. But if you know where the New Testament goes, you know that God won an, a victory bigger than Egypt. God won a, a the victory. And it's important to think about how that victory was won. It was through the cross. And so what I want to say before we just to tee up communion, I want to combine, in a sense, the Exodus victory with the crucifixion victory. I want to combine those two things. And what I mean is that if we hold both victories together, I think that's crucial for understanding who God really is. Because... Think about this. And I come back to this a lot, especially that's why I love studying Old Testament stories. It's so important that we have the entire witness of the scriptures. Because, because in the Exodus victory, we see God's utter might, God's utter power, God's ability to command and strike down these powerful forces in the world. We see clear display of God's power. God flexes God's power in the Exodus. And I do believe that because we see that, I do believe today that God is more powerful than things like the economy and our politics and so on and so forth, and even human violence. God is more powerful. Power is an aspect of God, absolutely. And in the cross, we see another crucial aspect of God, which is God's willingness to enter extreme vulnerability, even though he had access to the power to destroy Egypt. See Philippians 2. Even though he had equality with God. He did not grasp it, but he emptied himself. 
So when you hold these things together, God's utter might, God's power over empire, and God's willingness out of love to enter extreme vulnerability, even though he had access to that power, that's what's so important. You lose one or the other, and you get a distorted view of God. And the combination of the Exodus victory and the cross victory is what is combined so powerfully and beautifully in the Christian story, I think. And it's what we celebrate every week when we take communion together. God in Christ is victorious over every other God that we tend to worship. And he's victorious through the sacrifice of his own self, his own broken body, and his own spilled blood. That is so important to remember and hold on to. And that's what Colossians 2 is actually one of my favorite verses I come back to all the time. Consider the language of this verse here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him, in Jesus. The gods have been brought down. They've been brought low. The gods thought they were winning in killing him. That's what scripture also says. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they'd known what they were doing. They thought they were winning and they were bringing about their own defeat. And that's what we celebrate every week when we take this together. And every week we pray and in faith and in action hope to be made more and more like, like him through God's spirit. So um, if I could have um, Joey and Shauna, maybe the two of you would be willing to hand out some. Um, they're going to bring the, uh, the elements around. Thank you. I invite you to take take a cup. Uh, but, and you can start, start to open the top. But I uh, invite you to wait until everyone has one, and we'll, we'll take it together. I'll guide us through. But as they're coming around, I want to just pray this prayer, and I'll make it clear when to actually eat and drink. So pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, who of your tender mercy gave your Son to suffer death for our redemption, who made there a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Hear us now, merciful Father. And grant that we, as we take this communion together, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood, who instructed us to do this in remembrance of him. So go ahead and take the cup. Take the wafer. In the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul into everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your heart by faith and thanksgiving. So then take and eat. Take the cup. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, may it preserve your body and soul into everlasting life.
drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.